John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 428.gn3907, certificate number 2793, etchings. As we've mentioned, we're newly home from the cruise where we were not quarantined. That's right. The Joko cruise. That one got sick on the, on the nerd boat. It was kind of amazing when we were the last cruise to depart. And really when we got back to port, they shut down all cruises. As I was leaving the ship, the captain got on the PA to cancel shore leave in his Dutch accent. Yeah. For all of the crew. Like, because they were not, there is no shore leave. The cruising is over forever. Yeah, that's right. We're not switching it over. We're not bringing 10,000 more eggs on the ship. It's done. We're closing it down. So now we're back. Instead of being quarantined on a boat, we're quarantined in Seattle, which mm-hmm. is nice. Seattle's nicer than a boat. We're in our homes, so but that makes it easier. Our children are here. Our children, where Seattle, they play with their toys. Seattle has other advantages over a cruise ship, although I can't think of any right now. Well, although we are sequestered and everything's shut down, there are stores, and they're still open, and you can go get Hershey bars. There were stores on the boat. Well, yeah, but you had to pay. F- you were complaining about four dollar Coke Zeros. <laughs> there was no the, uh, the the what I thought was the drugstore pretty much sold Jonathan Colton Cruz performer merch right. and Holland America merch, right? And it did not really have the stuff I thought you would want on a cruise, like eye drops or uh, uh, Q tips. One time I was on a cruise and I went to that little store and said, "Do you have any razors? It seems like a razor. I would like a razor. I'd like to shave." And they said, ah, normally we do, but we don't have any now. I was like, really? How did it not make it onto the pallet? It seems like you would. You, you would got 10,000 eggs, but you don't have. Well, there's a limited number of things for sale in this store and razors are not a rationed thing. They're not a thing that you have a hard time finding. That would be your top five items. Right. If it's just the things that you would call down to a hotel desk because you forgot them. Toothbrush, toenail clippers, soap, razors. Top five. Right. Uh, what did you, uh. We were talking on the cruise about how you consume no media of any kind. Did on you, the cruise, did, right. Well, in general. In right, life. oh, that's also true. <laughs> did you bring a book even on the cruise? Uh, typically on the cruise, what I do for entertainment is sit on my little balcony and stare at the ocean and look for UFOs. I feel like uh, in the middle of the night when everyone else is asleep. You go walking in your, you go walking, how does it go? <laughs> in the middle of the, I go walking in the. With my, That's my uh, Billy Joel song. Yeah, I don't, I, I'm not a fan. Uh, no, I go out. I'm not a fan of anything. What if Billy Joel were the one thing you were a fan of? Now all these nerds wearing their Starfleet uniforms. Bozos. But I'm there like, piano man. No, no. I'm a fan of UFOs coming up out of the out of the sea. And so I sit on the deck in the middle of the night. In the hopes that. Wearing my white gown. Um, I, you know, I walk... Uh, I walk out on the fens in my white gown. People think you're a ghost often on the ship. They do. Uh, but it's I'm, a common occurrence. But I'm mourning um, the man in black who who died rather than betray our affair. Johnny Cash? Yeah, that's right. That's amazing that you two had a had a, a liaison. Well, he's dead now, so I can finally reveal it. Just, <laughs> <laughs> just like Sorry, I re- <laughs> June, but... Just like I revealed that uh, that Thomas Guinness was the, was behind the, the leasing of my famous ship, the... Uh, the Cousteau. The YMS Calypso. So no, I don't bring a book. I just search the sea for, for UFOs. 
and uh, so far unsuccessful in 11 cruises. I cannot fathom a world in which I would get on a plane, much less an eight-day cruise, without something to read. Without a book, right. But you are someone, and this cruise really revealed it, who needs action. You want something to be happening. And I don't mean needs action like you're a a war correspondent addicted to adrenaline. I don't need a speedboat chase You just need some task or duty or something to... Something that you feel like is a legitimate use of your time. A couple of times on the cruise, we had two straight days at sea because the itinerary got a little messed up. Yeah. And followed by a shore day. And those, it turned out two days on that boat. Is your stir crazy limit? A bit much. I was a little restless. I kept thinking up missions for you. You know, like, Ken, I want Ken, you go to- go buy me a drink. Yeah. Ken, I want you to go around the boat and find every chocolate milkshake <laughs> and bring them to me immediately. <laughs> find every chocolate dipped strawberry. And you were like, that's not enough of a mission. Uh, I actually was just trying to invent stuff to do. Do people's podcasts, try to find right. you know, something. There's an unlimited number of sea monkeys that would recruit you into their lockpicking class if you'd, if you'd made that widely known that I you got, were bored. I did not do the lockpicking class, but maybe I should have. Maybe I could have got off the boat. Uh, <laughs> you could have gotten into my house without ringing the doorbell so obnoxiously. But I knew I was going to need... A lot of reading, and I had a, a collection of uh, Library of America collection of Raymond Chandler detective novels mm-hmm. that I had not started yet. And so it has like his can confirm it has the four last Philip Marlowe detective novels from uh, what the little sister on, I guess. You sat around the swimming pool uh, singing their praises as though I'd never heard of Raymond Chandler. No, you well, you had never read Raymond Chandler, you'd seen like the Humphrey Bogart it's movie. Not like I'd never read any of it. <laughs> I was giving. I had you not a, read those books. I though. was giving you a little review. You were because I enjoy them very much. They're they're really very densely plotted, overplotted. He would often combine two different short stories he had written. He would cannibalize them into one novel and kind of try to get the plot threads. But famously accurate uh, dialogue, see, uh, written in vernacular. Yeah, written in. It's a little bit heightened. Like I think Dashiell Hammett was the one who was an actual Pinkerton and kind of knew how you would how you would uh, follow a perp, how you, how you would put a tail on someone, mm-hmm. you know, how you would uh, uh, know if somebody had been in your hotel room. You know, he knew all the tricks of the trade. Marlowe's a little more literary, or Chandler's a little more literary, and so Marlowe talks in a bit of a, it's slang, but it's very heightened. Yeah. Um, and in at least two of the novels, he makes a joke about, I guess, the common 1930s euphemism of of coming up to look at someone's etchings. Come on up and look at my etchings. You you have heard this before. Yeah. What it, what do you gather from it? It just seems like a it seems like a, like a pickup line. Yeah. Come up come up to my artist's garret and look at my etchings. Let's go down and watch the submarine races. That's is that what, is that what you say? That's what I say. That one seems a little more sexual cuz it's down instead of up. Yeah, let's go let's go out to the to the uh to the point and watch the submarine races. It takes a second. Is make-out point uh, where you wind up? Something. Yeah, you, you wind up at make-out point, and, and she's like, wait a minute, submarine, submarine races. Submarine races. I'm like, yeah, they're out there. But it's you're not, right maybe now. you're not dating the brightest bulbs, so they... Uh... No, but they're so smart that, they, that they're like, hmm, submarine races, that seems like it would be an interesting adventure. Or they immediately see through your charade, and they yeah. see the proposition for what it is. And they're like, but they I, go anyway. I gleefully accept, and I will play along. That's how it actually happens. Uh, do, how do you, how do you take this? Do you think there are actual etchings? Yes. I think it's a, I think it is a, um, it's a way of revealing that you are a frustrated artist, which in and of itself is a kind of romantic enticement. Like, did you, did you know that I am, I'm also very creative? I have an artistic temperament. It could also be a sign of wealth. Like if I have a. If I have a nice collection of etchings oh, to look at. Oh, other artists' etchings. Oh, you think it might be your own work? Well, that's what, that's what I always thought. Ah. Come up and look at my etchings that I've done of, of um, you know, like these poorly poorly thought out etchings of, of church, church steeples and little boys. There is some of that in the, uh, in the history of the phrase. I was kind of looking into, by the time Marlowe uses this cliche, this kind of cliched pickup line or proposition, it seems a bit shopworn, kind of like everything about him. Uh-huh. Like he is commenting ironically on the trope of 
inviting a woman to like he'll often say oh do you want me to come up and see your etchings you know it does some feel withering little, put down for the femme fatale throwing herself at him it's a little jazz age sounding for someone that's in the noir years and it kind of seems like by the time it catches on it's already a punchline like i feel like i've heard it much more sardonically than i ever have seen it like in some sincere may west come up and see me sometime kind of a way right uh like it immediately became a hack way to hit on uh, a lady or gentleman. I can't imagine it was ever a sense. I mean, the, only one person could have ever said it sincerely. And the person standing nearby that overheard it immediately said it ironically. How would it catch on though? <laughs> like it's very oddly specific of all the, you know, because we have expressions like, you know, let's come, come up for a nightcap. Right. You know, we already have euphemistic ways to say, well, we could go to your place. Right. Right. Etchings is very specific. Do you own any etchings? Do I own I, any I know all etchings? your possessions are right now in a big cube, a big oh, board cube somewhere. In fact, I do. Um, my friend Ben Barris of the of the arts collective Sutton Barris Color, a local Seattle sort of agitprop. Um, consortium? Uh, arts consortium. He has been doing etchings for the last several years. I own an early example of his etchings because he, one time he asked me to play an art opening and I was like, why would I play your art opening? And he said, I'll, gi- I'll give you an etching. And Was he coming on to you? So he did. He <laughs> said, come up and see my etchings. He gave it to me. And then uh, when I was dating Millennium Girlfriend, she fell in love with Ben Barris's etchings and bought two or three of them. She came up to see your etchings. She came up to see his etchings. Uh, or she saw my etching and then she wanted some of her own. And then, he, and then I bought an, uh, another one. Uh, recently that he claimed he did on mushrooms, which was, which looked completely unlike his other etchings and the fact that it, but he's actually included lyrics from my songs in some of his etchings. Oh, interesting. Do you get a discount on those? No, but now he's doing glassware. He's actually etching stuff into, uh, like mugs and it's beautiful. And I've, I've been thinking about getting some of his newer etchings. So in fact, I have yes, seduced you, a woman by saying, come see my etchings. And you have a very etching-centric life. I had no idea when I asked that question how good your etchings resume was about to be. I, I own a few etchings and have used them as a seduction technique. I have one etching, and I'd already been married for well over 15 years when I bought my etching, and I've never seduced anyone with well, it. Or, no, anyone, full stop. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> my wife and I in our twin beds like to look at the etching, and then we... Reach over and turn out the light. My my sense of your uh, of your story of your marriage is just that she decided to marry you because she woke up having had a sort of afternoon maybe nightmare. Like, oh no, I'm going to marry Ken. But no, the nightmare is that she's not married to me, and it was so horrific oh, that she immediately had to marry me. Yeah, I mis- I misheard that story. I guess. Well, she woke up with the the story's not wrong. She woke up with, with the sudden conviction that we were going to be married, despite the fact that. We had just got out on our first date. <laughs> so whatever the mind control drugs were, right. they, I don't know on whose end, but they did work. But it wasn't really seduction unless, no. unless your seduction prowess is so it's, strong. Yeah, exactly. Like one I, date. I have to limit it for that reason. I'm thinking that maybe etchings is not the right medium for if you're on mushrooms because hmm. it's a very laborious and detailed and kind of fiddly little process. Do you know how etchings get etched? But he is an he is a fiddly and and laborious etcher. And although it, not a person that you, you you wouldn't think of him as in looking at him, you're not like, oh what a meticulous weirdo. He doesn't have a green visor thing. No, he seems like he seems like a wild weirdo. So But if you have that in you, does psilocybin just make you more fiddly and laborious? What it did was it made him less his work is extremely intricate, and this um, this this one is much more sort of freehand and looks a little looks a little bit crazy. I'm 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 sorry to confess that I uh, that I was having it framed, and it's at his studio right now. So I need to go I need to go pick up that etching. I don't have it here. We should we should post a photo of it for yeah. the, for the time capsule. We should. We should. Uh, so I looked into the process of etchings, which I did not. I didn't understand the various kinds of printmaking very well. Mm-hmm. Etching is unusual in that it's an intaglio process. Mm-hmm. The uh, it is not relief. You know, we're used to kind of potato print style of printmaking, where the 
inked portion is raised. Right. The weird thing about etching is that the inked portion is lowered, and you think, Ken, how can that possibly how work? How can that be, Ken? Explain it to I us I will explain. You have some kind of metal plate that you cover with wax, and then you carve with some kind of instrument. You, you scrape out the drawing in the wax, so only the exposed metal is there. And then you use some kind of acid to eat away the exposed line work. Right. So now you've got these little trenches all over. And what you can do is you can effectively fill the fill the little the scrapes the trenches with ink, and so the ink will be at the surface level of the rest of the plate, and when the paper is pressed, the ink in the trenches, you know, only that line work will survive. Yeah, they're really fascinating to, and and, and I think that that is uh, that's evident in them when you when you look closely at them. They seem made by a different process. They have a yeah, they have a very kind of finely detailed quality. You know, this goes back to, I don't know, the 16th century, you know, German engravers like Albrecht Dürer, maybe you can imagine some of his etchings, the the, the, the hands. Uh, Rembrandt, uh, much of his prolific output was engravings and etchings. And there was a 19th century revival in etching in uh, around 1860 in France that later spread throughout Europe and the New World and kind of jump-started our story today uh, and, and gave us the come up and see my etchings cliche that was everywhere in the culture in the 1930s. Um, in Dashiell Hammett's 1934 novel, The Thin Man, classic detective fiction, Nick and Nora Charles, uh, one character protests that a, a good looking redhead was only in his apartment because, quote, she just wanted to show me some French etchings. Mm. So the French kind of modifies it and makes it a little saucy. He, uh, she brought her portfolio of etchings to lay out on his table. Uh, maybe it's her place, or maybe yeah, maybe she did bring them. That's the that's the classic joke of one of the most famous etching references. Uh, often New Yorker cartoons would would use this punchline <laughs> in the same way. Today you'll see the New Yorker try to use memes and stuff. Right. Uh, there's a famous 1937 cartoon where a, a, you know a caveman invites in a cave woman to his cave so that see he can see her etchings. etchings, and they're just cave paintings. Oh, the New Yorker. Um, and in 1939, the most famous one is a James Thurber panel where uh, a, an overly fussy gentleman has a woman sitting in the lobby of his apartment and he says, essentially, you wait here, I'll bring my etchings down. He's, <laughs> he's, not, he's not very good at Missing it. Missing the point entirely. He's just, he, you know, I remember when etchings were about the right. printmaking, right. you know. And she woke up the next morning going, oh, I'm going to marry him. <laughs> but there were but there were dirty etchings. And I wonder if that, because they're Thank kind God of we a, got to the dirty etchings part. Because they were a small kind of portable format in an area without, in an era without photography, if you wanted kind of a lusty view of the Greek gods cavorting with mortal women, or even later, uh, later these uh, etchings became kind of, do you, do you know the no, concept of- In the 1930s, we had photography. No, I'm talking about- uh, I'm talking about this this prior centuries. I'm talking about from Albrecht Durer up until uh, the of etchings revival of the 19th century. That was a time when pornographic did, etchings abounded. Now, did uh, our truly great artists, the Rembrandts and the Durers, et cetera, were they making porn on the side? I don't think so. Are These, there any Rembrandt porns? Is that what you want? <laughs> that are well, I mean, I love his uh, I love his work. I love his his pen and ink. Oh, I love his smoker's toothpaste, mm. but uh, isn't that right? Isn't Rembrandt, Rembrandt like a smoker's toothpaste? <laughs> Rembrandt. Uh, Am I thinking of Topol? Feel I always get Rembrandt condoms. and Topol confused. Which mm. one's in Fiddler on the Roof? Uh, Topol. Yeah, probably. Who also was in the movie I watched last night? For your eyes only. No, he appears prominently in Flash Gordon. Oh yeah, he's in Flash Gordon. I forgot. <laughs> he's Zarkov, the scientist. <laughs> How, what are the chances that you would make a Topol reference? Right when you were so str- you were fresh from his oeuvre. Wow. Uh, he's our favorite Israeli actor here on The Omnibus. Right. Uh, no, the uh, they were often, I think, in the style of Wait, great our artists. Fav- our favorite Israeli uh, actor until Wonder Woman came out recently. That's right. And then Gal Gadot became our Gal our Gadot favorite. is my new favorite Israeli actor. Uh, not me. I mean, they're both very good looking. But if I had to, if I was judging a beauty contest and it was Gal Gadot and Topol, I might, mm. I might have to go Topol. Which, which one fiddled on a roof? <laughs> he doesn't actually fiddle. He's the milkman. He's the milkman below the roof. What I'm trying to say go ahead. is that sometimes these pornographic etchings were in the style of great artists, oh. but they were by 
lesser hands. They were uh, by... And maybe by one hand. By Al Jaffe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Mad Magazine, by the way, since you mentioned Al Jaffe, would often make jokes about etchings. And a lot of boomers probably gr- grew up knowing the gag about something sexy about etchings from Mad Magazine parodies. But not connecting it to... Because by the time it got to Mad Magazine, they're making a reference to a reference to a reference. Yeah, exactly. Like they're referencing uh, 1930s pre-code movies and these detective novels. Because all their artists were born in 1907. Exactly. So, you know, and kids grew up looking at this stuff and it's the classic Simpsons gag about Bart Simpson saying, they're really sticking it to the Spiro Agnew guy. He must work there or something. (laughs) It's all the stuff that's incomprehensible. But as a child, if you're told that it's comedy, you will say, ha, 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 That seems like a George Meyer joke right there. I wonder if it is. He loved Mad Magazine. John, do you think there's any kind of ailment or syndrome where it's work? The cure is easier than prevention. The cure is easier than prevention. It seems Uh, like it's always easier to... To prevent rather than to cure, right? right? I mean, the the cure for lung cancer is to stop smoking, not to get invasive chemo. Yes. Or like caustic chemo. Although they're both hard. Well, but I have quit smoking. And you've never had? I've never had chemo. Quitting smoking is hard, but I think chemo's harder. I think like uh, it's certainly true of hair loss. I mean, there there are safe, effective things you can... Like a guy with male pattern baldness can put on his head. What can you do to prevent hair loss? Nothing, right? You can use you can use uh, these treatments. Like oh, oh I see like what the, you're saying. The same stuff that can regrow hair, like will help keep the hair you already have. And it's much you can do both, but it's much more effective to keep what you already have than to wait till you lose your hair and then regrow they, new they, stuff. They say this about uh, about reconstructive surgery. Like for instance, if I was going to have my It'd be easier not to drive into a dump truck? Well, no, they say, you know, it's better to keep your, say, for instance, knee that you damaged at a Grateful Dead concert uh, right. in the 80s than it is to try and repair it with surgery. I think this is why uh, our sponsor today, Keeps, is called Keeps. Rather oh. than Gets. Rather than Regrows. Uh-huh. Uh, because it's good for people who are worried they might be start thinning soon. Which describes you. You have a nice... A bunch of hair. It's just you feel like there's a little bit of thinning happening. It's going to happen to almost everybody, statistically speaking. Not me. And except for you, of yeah, course. Thank you. I'll live forever, and I have a beaver pelt for a hair. <laughs> but <laughs> but for those of us who do not have a beaver pelt for hair, there's a hundred thousand men who use Keeps, a service to get their hair loss prevention medication, every month without having to mess around with. Uh, prescriptions and pharmacy checkout lines. So keeps is not a medication itself. It is a, it is a, a place to get medication for hair. Yes. Hair it's loss a, it's a service. So you don't have to go to your doctor and then your pharmacy. So you can online get a consultation, get prescribed what you need and just have it appear at your house oh. every month. Oh, well done keeps. And it just, it costs like 10 bucks a month uh, and up. So, and for a limited time, John, I'm yeah. going to, oh. I'm going to give the non beaver pelt listeners a way to get their first month free. Uh-huh. What you need to do to do that. Are you, are you going to write this down? I'm ready. Get a pencil. Here I go. If you're ready to take action. Here, here's, a, here's a Foley sound of my pencil ready. Go to keeps.com slash omnibus and you'll get your first month of treatment for free. What are you writing now? Uh, just what you just said. Go to keeps.com slash omnibus. And get your get first, your first month, month free. There you, go. you can read your own notes. That's yeah. great. K-E-E-P-S dot com slash omnibus. Apparently, some of the dirtier engravings of later days were effectively Tijuana Bibles. Do you know what a sure. Tijuana Bible is? It's, Tijuana Bible. You, do you pronounce it Tijuana, even though no Mexican would? I do. <laughs> right. Do Do you pronounce it Perry? Do, uh, do you I pronounce do. it Munchen? I do say Munchen. <laughs> uh, my wife and I were vacationing in Budapest. Well, I love that the the uh, the East has kind of started to reclaim, you know, you say Beijing instead of Peking, you say Mumbai instead of Bombay. What if, like, Europe started doing that? Right. You know? It's not... It's, it's, what, it's, if, what if Denmark was like, you have to say Copenhagen now? <laughs> Nobody has any choice. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, Moskva. Exactly. We, right? can, we can start saying Moskva. Why don't we have... Why don't we start doing that immediately? We already but, say Barcelona. Oh, some with, of us. With the theta. I guess I do sometimes. Barcelona. I do it as a bit. Barcelona. But these, you know, Tawana Bibles are, uh, you know, a 20th century kind of cheaply made. You're going to stick with this Tawana Bible? 
You say you're going to say Tijuana? Well, yeah, Tijuana. Do you really say Tijuana? No one will know what you're talking about. Tijuana is the correct pronunciation. But that's not what you said. You said Tijuana. I'm dumbing it down for the people. (laughs) Tijuana. But but not all the way to Tijuana. I'm not going to add a syllable for you. Tijuana. It's not called. Tijuana. (laughs) That's where we went. We never went to Tijuana. Do you want to see a donkey show? No, I don't. Okay. You say Tijuana. I'll say Tijuana. Let's Let's call the whole thing off. A Tijuana Bible is a early... I, I just cannot abide it. Tijuana. It's an early 20th century kind of cheaply printed publication that shows a popular uh, celebrity or comic strip star in pornographic situations. Right. So if you if your whole life you've fantasized about what Dagwood Bumstead's love life is actually like, like now you can see it if you get one of these, uh, what, bootleg publications. Have you ever seen the poster of all the Disney characters, but done naked? Yeah, it's naked? by uh, Wally Wood, I think. Yeah. It's some, some classic uh, Mad Magazine slash EC artist. Right. Yes, I have. It it scandalized me when I was a kid. I went you to some- You shouldn't be looking at that as a kid. Well, you know, I used to go to like hippie houses with my older siblings where people were smoking marijuana. <laughs> and uh, It's not marijuana. And this was hanging on the wall of one of those places. And of course, you know- it, they meant it all stoner ironic because it was also a blacklight poster. And you're like, I'm going to spend the rest of my life bothering millennials about Fabulous Free Freak Brothers yeah. comics. I stood there with my toes touching the wall, staring at this, watching Snow White ravished by the Do horrific seven things dwarves. to the dwarves. Yeah. It's awful. So there were uh, 18th century engravings that would show like Marie Antoinette. Whoa. In all varieties of Congress. Um, so there is a tradition of etchings being a little dirty, and maybe that's why it gets chosen for the joke. Oh, I see. Come see my classic etchings of Marie Antoinette being uh, ravished by Pope Pius. That's my theory, because there's, if you were to say it in French, the equivalent French cliche is come up and look at my estampe japonaises. Come look at my Japanese woodblock prints. Oh, and which also know, famously are right, sexy. Some, some of those are pretty and some are sexy. And so it's, there's some ambiguity there. Um, but the idea that you would use an art collection as a pretext for seduction actually goes way further back than, uh, than the 20th century, than the noir. Uh, it's a common trope in restoration comedy in British plays of the 17th century. Uh, one of the most famous of which is William Witcherly's The Country Wife. Now this is a play so dirty that it wasn't published or performed for centuries the actor David Garrick produced a cleaned-up version called The Country Girl. Mm-hmm. But the, the problem is he left in the dirty pun. I mean, the country wife is supposed to... You're supposed to hear the first syllable in country and kind of know the kind of naughty goings-on right. that are, are going to happen. That's, that was a pun back then. So you clean it up and say the country girl, but... He left in the country. Right. Um, and so that was Put the one Taking that was, the O out of country, if you know what I'm saying. Exactly. But the cleaned-up one was the one that got performed a lot. But in the original The Country Wife... There's a famous scene in which uh, Horner, the the not accidentally named rakish seductive guy, um, gets taken off stage by two women uh, who want to look at his china collection. Mm. And there's a lot of offstage comment about the impressiveness of his china collection as they examine it. And in the meantime, you know, two characters are on the stage eavesdropping and kind of ooing and aahing over the, the misunderstanding. Thinking it was a euphemism? Yeah, thinking something naughty is happening offstage. And in that one scene, you can see essentially all of British comedy up through the 20th century is, right. is that kind of a setup with, you know, two, you know, the two Ronnies overhearing some conversation and being like, what? What, what? did they say? Uh, what? Because they Would misunderstand like the parrot? <laughs> and there's a similar conversation in The Man's Bewitched, a, which is not an episode of Bewitched. It's uh, a restoration comedy by the most famous female playwright of the time, Susanna Centelivra, who uh, who uh, has a character say, interrogating, nay, then tis proper to be alone. There is a very pretty collection of prints in the next room, madam. Will you mm. give me leave to explain them to you? Mm. Oh, so it's a mansplaining opportunity. Exactly. Like, I'm going to come talk to you about my prints. But really, it's an excuse to get women alone. And I guess this was a time when it would have been harder to get a potential partner alone because you have to have a space to say, come up to. Right. And you have to have some reason other than come up and and show me your undergarments. 
Right. So there's there's the uh, the prudishness of the culture, but there's often just the inavailability of unavailability of private space. Right. Right. In an era when even kings and queens kind of had to, you know, if you've ever been to any European palace, you'll see how you know this is where the the queen's bedchamber was, and every day people would file in and help her bathe and change her clothes, and you know, even sure. clean the poop up from behind the curtains. Yeah, before the 18th century. Even the very wealthy did not have much private space to say, come up and see me sometime. There might not about. even have been a sense of it, um, except I suppose if you were the king or queen, you could say, everyone out, except for the prince whom I'm, to whom I'm going to show my etchings. That's right. If you have enough wealth and power. But you probably had an etching room. If you're just on the streets of London, though, you right. don't have the option of doing that. Well, and it feels also like... Uh, like something edifying. It feels like you're offering them. Oh, and oh, also, culture. if you if you invite somebody up to your room under a pretense and they believe the pretense is true, you have an out if you have some etchings. I agree 100%. I think um, that's why this kind of euphemism survives to, like, you know, because today we still have similar euphemisms, like a few years ago, Netflix and chill right. was a famous thing to say that did not mean let's watch Netflix. And the thing about a euphemism like that is it gives you an out if the seduction is unsuccessful. You're like, well, all I asked was that you come watch Netflix. We can still watch BoJack Horseman, right? Right. Uh, yeah. So you're, you're, you know, you're, you're not putting it quite as much on the line and you're avoiding the back then the taboo topic of, uh, would you like to come up to my Chambers, there, there is a respectable pretense. Right. I think these days you would say, do you want to see my salt collection? Is that what you would Because everyone's say? collecting salt these days. That's really one of the most popular sort of I'm, – I'm talking to the futurelings now. If you look back to the early 2020s, uh, salt collecting is like blowing up. People with pink Himalayan sea salt All and All the different and kinds such of like? salt. 700 different kinds of salt. Black salt. Rock salt. White pistachio nut. Country salt. Red pistachio nut. <sighs> Jazz salt. There uh, are a couple of things that happened in the 1890s that started to uh, etch, if you will, this cliche hmm. in the popular mind. Hmm. Uh, it, Horatio Alger, the famous, the best-selling author of his time, all these kind of rags to riches stories of good American youths pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. Mm -hmm. uh, in his 1890 book, The Eerie Train Boy, he has a woman. Eerie like Erie Canal or no, Erie it's, like it's weird? Not, it's not haunted. It's the train to Erie, PA, I right. assume, or maybe Erie County, New York. Uh, in this case, the because uh, the thing about the the artistic collections that are used as sexual signifiers, they're never etchings up hmm. until this point. You know, Up until the Horatio Alger stories? Yes. Oh. A collection of China is... Uh, it's really the euphemism. Can we bring that back? That was a, that was a very famous scene. So yeah, people would uh, like the word China did kind of become a little bit naughty because people understood its association with this famous scene. Even though it's it's a little bit arbitrary. There's right. if you were trying to choose something that seemed like a good innuendo, you might choose something a little more phallic or with a better pun than a China collection. Well, yeah, but you know your innuendo at that point is meant to be something you can say in front of a matron who's guarding the, you know, who's guarding the, the virtue true, of a maiden. True. But and, it could be anything in that case. Right. If it can, it can, if it can be a China collection, it can also be a credenza or, uh, your, you know, your Hummel. Although figurines. if you say like, come, come see my collection of literature, it could be, that's a little too sexy. I mean, China is absolutely unsexy. And so that's true in that sense, maybe ultimately sexy. Uh, but the use of etchings for this trope may begin with Horatio Alger, who has a uh, who has a woman tell a male suitor, apropos, I have a new collection of etchings that I want to show you. Won't you name an evening when you will call? Oh. And so it's coming from a woman in this case. Ooh, which I'm is getting a, titillated just hearing it. Is that what you want? Yeah, it might be your voice, though. <laughs> apropos, I have a new collection <laughs> of etchings. And then he, he falls for it. He says, I shall no doubt find pleasure in examining the etchings, which you hold out as an inducement to call. I mean, and knowing what we now know about how etchings became a cliche, this seems a little bit naughty, but I'm sure nothing could have been further from Not Horatio so. Alger's mind. These were fine, upstanding works. Not these, so sure. These weren't depraved like you're like you're trying to make it with that face. I feel like I feel like the connection to Japanese etchings and in particular the 
the upskirt shots uh, would be would be present even then. Really, people would know about uh, tentacle etchings. Well, but we're talking about fin de siècle. That's true. Uh, culture where the arts and crafts movement and um, and this japonoise uh, like culture was was part of the fashionable set. Maybe you're so mad right now. Well, I'm just because thinking... I said japonoise. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still more mad about Tijuana. Honestly, uh, maybe people would know. I just I just think. I naively think of all the good little boys and girls reading uh, Horatio Alger books as not having the the cultural avalanche that we have today, right? Where our kids know every dirty joke as soon as it appears. Your fond de siècle was just uh, William Morris prints. You were like, that was the era of the best wallpaper. This wallpaper is fantastic. <laughs> and I'm like, oh man, the access to Japanese porn was. Blowing up. The other thing that happened in the 1890s that may have helped cement etchings in particular mm. as a as a device for this use uh, was the most famous news event of the time. Do you know anything about the murder trial involving Harry Thaw and Stanford White? Tell me more. I think it was the first, maybe the first time the phrase the trial of the century was used for a really... Amazing murder trial that captures everybody's mind. This was in 1899, so they're like, we know all the trials up till now. We've seen all the trials, and this is definitely going to be the one of the century. Right. They, they, will, they will all. I mean, that's when you should be doing it, right? Right, right at the end. And we did it with OJ in the same way. In the 90s, we were like, we've seen the scopes, we've seen all the, 19th, the 20th century trials. Sure, Nuremberg. Court martial. <laughs> yeah, Nuremberg was fine. But OJ. But check it out. This one has a car chase in it. <laughs> You're right. It is a little arrogant to say something is the trial of the century in 1902. We can't do it today. Right. We're still a little too early. You got you to gotta wait. Uh, Stanford White was one of the most famous Americans, or the most famous New Yorkers, at least at the time. He was a leading architect. Mm-hmm. He worked for uh, McKim, Mead, and White, the leading architecture firm. And he had really kind of turned New York from slightly provincial Edith Wharton kind of a town to what we see today with the canyons of skyscrapers and all the kind of Romanesque marble and terracotta facades, just kind of majestic avenues, which was not a thing that New York had before him. You know, he gave us the Washington Square Arch and most famously, the original Madison Square Garden was his design. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had uh, a marriage of long standing to a lovely woman named Bessie that I think he had known when he was young, but she was out in Long Island. Oh, yeah. And when the cast sequestered. Away, yeah, she was sequestered on Long Island because <laughs> uh, she knew the Spanish flu was coming in 30 years. Mm-hmm. And he would spend his time on his little, he had uh, some kind of garret above Madison Square Garden because when you design Madison Square Garden, you got to build yourself an apartment. I love it already. And he had a studio in the Tenderloin, like on 24th Street, above what was then FAO Schwartz, the original FAO Schwartz toy store. Man, he was living. So he had two different places where he could bring chorus girls, and that's exactly what he did. He was always at the Broadway shows, and uh, in the uh, around 1890, he goes to see the floor, the famous Floridora girls at that floor show, and falls for a particular Spanish dancer in mm. quotes mm. named Evelyn Nesbit. Mm, famous Spanish name. Yeah, not, she was not super <laughs> Spanish. Evelyn Nesbit. She was playing a Spanish dancer, and oh, she probably had some kind of Nesbitz. she probably had some kind of peasant blouse. It's, right. I'm sure it's just an excuse for cleavage. Listen, I fall for a peasant blouse every time. You love Oktoberfest, I, I, even though you don't drink beer anymore. Nope, you will just go drink Coke Zeros at Oktoberfest. The St. Pauli girl can lead me right out of the <laughs> of the brew hall. Uh, and Evelyn Nesbitt at the time even though she was only 16 years old, was already a bit of a celebrity. She'd been plucked from obscurity as a shop girl just because apparently she just had a you know a beautiful, fresh face, mm-hmm. peaches and cream. Uh, Charles Dana Gibson, the popular artist of the time. The Gibson girl you know, If you can picture the Gibson girls of the time, w- one of the most famous ones is a, is a girl in profile whose who's kind of large, lustrous hair makes a question mark, and it's called the eternal question. And that was actually a portrait of Evelyn Nesbitt. Uh, so it, it came out at the later trial that Stanford White uh, would invite chorus girls up to his studio to show them his his etchings. Yes, his art collection. Wow! And Evelyn Nesbitt looks exactly like my ex girlfriend Megan, and I knew she would. Is that why you looked her up? Yeah, I knew she would because I 
because I just had a sense. The peasant blouse, the um, heart-shaped face, she's well, breaking my heart already. I'm sure Megan would not be 145 years old today, which is about how old Evelyn Nesbitt would be. She uh, died in the 50s or 60s, I think, in Wow, LA. it's astonishing how much she looks like Megan. God, uh, I feel like this episode needs to be over. This entry in the omnibus is once again brought to you by Meh.com, our favorite deal of the day website. Mm-hmm. You may remember that last month in April, John and I told dueling stories. And gave different promotional codes so that you could vote with your wallets as to which story you preferred. And uh, John, it gives me no pleasure to say that your story... Uh, defeated mine, thrashed it soundly. Hooray! With 69% of the vote. Whoa, nice. Nice, nice, the nicest number. That is nice. Uh, To 31, your story defeated mine. I don't even remember what our stories were about, but that's great. They're both about childhood amusement parks, and yours had you holding up trains, and there's no way to compete with young John Roderick holding up a train. That is true. So, but we're going to do this again. Again, we're going to tell a story in May. And you're going to pick the winner by going to meh.com slash omnibus. Right. And when you buy something, you can either enter the code John or the code Ken. Oh. Depending on whose story you preferred. Meh.com slash omnibus. And that will deliver you a $5 off coupon. Last last uh, last month, me buying 1,500 things from meh really tipped the scales. <laughs> and then uh, next month, we will announce the winner this time. And I'm really hoping for a comeback. Here is my story. Uh, It begins in unpleasant fashion, but you got to bear with me. My wife, uh, many years ago, went to a doctor because she had a a plantar wart on the uh, sole of her foot, Mm. and she wanted it gone. Right. And normally they would would inject her with something that just gets rid of the wart. But in this case, she was pregnant with with our daughter. You know, I know this was 14 years ago. Right. And so, ma'am, if you're pregnant, we can't give you the injection. We're just going to give you... This stuff you put on the wart, and then you cover it up, uh, you know, with something that'll stay there, and then that it'll slowly soften and get rid of the wart over time. So she takes her prescription to the pharmacy, and she shows the guy the wart cream she's supposed to get, and he goes back and makes it, and he says, "All right, well, you know what to do with this," and she says, "Yeah, yeah, the doctor just told me I just put on the cream, and then I put on some sturdy duct tape and wait for it to do its work." And the pharmacist just looked horrified. And he said, ma'am, I don't think, I don't think you want to do that. And she said, what do you mean? And he said, I don't think you want to use duct tape there. And my wife said, well, that's the, you know, it's a planter wart. So I just need something sturdy on my foot. And he looked so relieved. And he said, oh, I'm sorry. Normally I fill this prescription for genital warts. <laughs> he was so worried about the duct tape. Now in the next entry, you'll hear John's story. Yes. So go to med.com slash omnibus sometime this month and vote for either John or Ken. That's med.com slash omnibus. Make your voice heard. When she got up to his apartment, girls were always delighted that he had a red velvet swing. Oh, wow. Which at first I'm sure he would use for innocent purposes. Life goals. He, you know... uh, White would always convince these girls' families that he was, you know, just uh, had a fatherly interest in them. Sure, sure, sure. But unfortunately, the story does not end there. And I guess this should be a a content warning for people who do not want any mentions of sexual assault because the Evelyn Nesbitt story takes a dark turn. Oh, no. After convincing her family that he is, uh, his intentions are purely noble, he lures her up to see the etchings, drugs her champagne, and rapes her. Oh, no. Uh in in a in a way that uh, you know that would confuse many audiences, but which is not uncommon, she proceeds to continue to date him for a few years. Right. Uh, in which you know, and he kind of introduces her to a newer and wealthier world, uh, assuming pr- presumably he's gaslighting her to some degree about the awful things he did to her and is continuing to do to other chorus girls. She soon realizes he's not going to leave his wife and that he's still messing around on his swing with. Every every girl on Broadway, mm-hmm. uh, and she leaves him and takes up with Harry Thaw, uh, an unstable steel millionaire's son from Philadelphia, who's never, uh, you know, kind of an idle rich kid, 
who loves Evelyn, but is just obsessed with the idea of her with this gross old architect. Right. And it's just constantly wants details about their relationship. Uh, a jealous and unstable scion of a, of a steel millionaire. This is why we can't tax the rich. Because if you do, they lose their ability to throw money at... Chorus girls. 17-year-old chorus girls. Right. He takes her to Europe where, again, trigger warning number two, he comes to her room one night, rips off her nightgown and flogs her with some leather strap and rapes her. So she cannot catch a break with these awful men. Hmm. Uh, He's so obsessed that he even reverses the dental work that Stanford White paid for. He fixed some of her teeth and Thaw has them put back. Huh? How do you force someone to undergo dental work? Uh, or, or did he say, I'm going to, I'm going to do even better. And then he whispered to the dentist, actually screw it up. <laughs> uh, I bet she did what he said because he was a scary commanding guy in mm. an abusive relationship. This is awful. Although, you know, the dental side of it is something you don't normally see. That is a little bit of an extreme version. I guess, I guess the original, um, the original rendezvous between White and Nesbitt must have been in the very late 1890s because this story reaches its legal phase on the night of June 25th, 1906, when uh, Thaw and Nesbitt are sitting at a show at Madison Square Garden. Thaw notices Stanford White, the designer of the building, sitting at a different table. So he walks over and shoots him twice in the face. Whoa! In the building that White himself had designed, murdering him in cold blood. Whoa! Carrying a gun to the opera. Taking a gun to the floor show uh, and just shooting the guy in twice in the face. So you can you can see why it's the trial of the century. Boy, I'll say. Like a, Hard to... A, an eccentric millionaire shoots a... Today it would be like if Elon Musk walked into Hamilton and shot Frank Gehry, or, or no, who's a famous architect, or some famous I artist. Pay. She shoots I am Pei, 103-year-old I am Pei, in the face because they're fighting over some starlet, Selena Gomez or something. Like, it's got all the ingredients for weeks and weeks and months and months of headlines. Hard to imagine uh, that there would be much of a case for the defense. The defense is interesting because this does not turn out to be one trial. It turns out to be three trials. And, of course, the fact that this stays in the headlines for months is where the device about the etching starts to simmer into the... Public consciousness. Mm-hmm. Oh, the thing. By the way, you, yeah, you'd think it would be a done deal. I think Thaw was prepared to go to jail because after he, after he fires the three bullets, two into White's face and one into his shoulder, he says, uh, "Get Mister Andrew Carnegie uh, and tell him that I've just done a murder or something." I don't know why he needs to bring the Carnegies into it. I will allow Carnegie. We got in trouble when we said Carnegie last yeah, time. Yeah, we did. So I'm that- I'm uh, deferring to our hyper correcting. Pedantic audience. I cannot wait to see what the futurelings think about the Tijuana, Tijuana, or as you said, Tijuana. I just started saying Tijuana. Tijuana. Which is correct. But you didn't D- put the Juana. You're going to start saying Maria Juana. <laughs> I really am. I, well, not start saying it. I've been saying it all along. Uh, the So in the there are three, these turned out to be three trials. In the first trial, uh, the lawyer wants to plead insanity and Thaw will not have it. I knew exactly was, what I was doing. That was a plea in 1906, the insanity. Yes. Plea. You could say this guy is nutty as a, as a, as a squirrel. As the, was the scion of a steel, right. steel fan. This guy's inbred as hell. <laughs> and he didn't know what he was doing. He went to all the best schools, but he's still crazy. Uh, but Thaw insisted that he was not crazy. So the, he got a new lawyer who, built a case around the idea of the unwritten law that a, a man's woman is his property, sure. uh, you know, an execrable but popular idea of the time. And therefore, if anyone has messed with your property, y- y- vigilante justice is enough. Shooting him twice in the face at Madison Square Garden is not off the table. I see. You, yeah, you, you demand some, some recourse. And the law won't allow it, but the law will wink at it, I uh-huh. guess. I see. And this goes to trial with this defense... And the jury is deadlocked, seven to five. Seven, seven, peop- seven jurors want to acquit. Whoa. They're persuaded on... by the unwritten law. Uh, so there's a mistrial. A second trial happens. This time, a new counsel agrees, you know, gets thought to agree to try an insanity plea. And this time it works, and he's committed to some booby-hatching 
I think Vermont or New Hampshire. He's sent up to New England. Um, and he doesn't like it. I mean, he's been, he's been getting Delmonico's in prison, you know, he's right. He's, he doesn't have it too bad. It seems like, uh, like an insane asylum would be an even easier place to sort of get yourself a sweet built and, uh, other members of your clan to bring you like sweet pies. He does better than that with, with like files or rasps in them. Well, no, if you've got, if you've got the nice, if you, well, here we are in our sequester. Like if I were sequestered in you know, my own private wing of a mental hospital and people were bringing me sweet pies. I don't know what, what else I would need. Uh, he was not happy apparently. Yeah. And, uh, just walked out. It wasn't a high security facility. I see. I see. He just walked by a confused guard and got across the border into Quebec and suddenly an extradition trial begins. Uh-huh. So finally there's a third trial. Uh, they get him back to New Hampshire and he's tried again for insanity. And this time he has found, I don't know how this works, but he's, he's found, uh, Newly culpable? No, newly sane and can leave the asylum, but also uh, not guilty. Not guilty on all charges of shooting a guy in the face twice. Oh, so he went through. That's an elaborate. Yeah, like, he. Re- yeah, the long con. You're not. A, you're, <laughs> you're in. You're not insane. Okay, you are insane. Now you're not insane, but He's, also not guilty. He successfully forgot them to forget what it would mean if he was actually sane. He forgot them to forget, uh, and uh, so he got off. And speaking of getting off, the idea of. Inviting women up to see your etchings uh, became engraven in the popular consciousness mm-hmm. as a result of the trial of the century. And I think this was... So So it's like, it's basically like, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. I guess. Like, we we took all this stuff from the OJ trial, the, the Bruno Magli shoes, the car chase. I mean, we still refer to those things. Cato, Kalen, they're like our friends. Right. We... Uh, Marsha Clark... We love them all. We miss them. James Edo. I send Lance Edo. I send Christmas cards Edo. to Judge Edo every. Uh, I feel like I knew a James year. Edo. In by the 1930s, uh, I think this is when the actual quote "Come on up and I'll show you my etchings" appears, and it appears of all places in print advertising for a Hollywood movie. Hmm. In 1933, the movie "The Warrior's Husband" is released based on a Broadway hit. Catherine Hepburn starred on Broadway, but nobody uh, as famous is in the movie. But it's a kind of a, a variation, a, a turnabout on the Am- uh, it's a use of the Amazon myth to turn about the typical gender play. It takes place in a fictional Greek-like Hellenistic state called Pontus, where the women are the amazing warriors, right? And hilariously, the men are all kind of um, cucks. Yeah, and, and again, using kind of the awful um, pansy stereotypes of the pre-code era, they're all kind of ineffectual, limp-wristed house husbands. Right. And they're, in fact, played by drag artists from the BBB Cellar Review, a popular drag act in L.A. at the time, whose motto was, boys will be girls. So there actually was authentic drag in this movie. But the point of the movie is that they need a real man, you know, a real Greek warrior comes in and, you know, it's... Sweeps up. This must have been popular at the time, because this is the Wonder Woman fantasy as well, that, uh, that there's this island of powerful women that want to tie you up, but also... If you're a dapper Air Force pilot, you can have your way with all of them. Right. So I, I guess I, before before fetishes were I do feel like it available. is probably a fantasy that goes back quite a ways in time. It seems like something maybe baked in. Maybe it is. But at the time, there was no real outlet for it. So right. you kind of had to pretend you were into the Amazons of, of Greek mythology. Right. Maybe, in fact, maybe that's where the Amazon myth comes from. <laughs> I, I, that's what, that was what I was speculating. <laughs> it is, uh, Even the, the ancient Greeks were like, what if there were these really strong women? We have a and lot of if, islands. And what if they came to visit? And then... <laughs> they were good warriors, but we are great Air Force pilots. So the print advertising for this movie included the line, come on up and I'll show you my etchings, which doesn't seem to have much to do with, with uh, Amazons and their ineffectual husbands. Is that the source of come on up and see me sometime, which, which was popular not that long after? No, I think that's in She Done Him Wrong, a pretty early Mae West movie of about the same time. Oh. And uh, so, you know, Alger would have been using etchings for this long before Mae West. So the idea predates, come, so come up and see me sometime is maybe a riff on it. Yeah. Um, but without the actual etchings. And I think that's because by the 30s, as you can see in the Philip Marlowe references, the, the references to etching is becoming old hat. Like I found a 1938 advice column where it's kind of used as an example of a 
uh, of a of a lame pickup line. Right. Kind of the way today we would make jokes about, you know, did it hurt when you fell from heaven or you know yeah, those. Sure, sure, if sure. I told you you had a beautiful body, would you hold it against me or? Do you have a mirror in your pants? You know, all these things which are kind of... Well, you seem to know a lot of these. Oh, I've got like 30 more here. Let's go through <laughs> these. Like these are all, these are all, uh, they're, yeah. they're trotted out as examples of awful ways. Right. To, uh, you know, shop-worn awful ways to try to pick up on a, on a woman or man. Something that, uh, that you might hear in less than zero. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so even by the 30s, the idea of showing someone your etchings was more of a punchline than an actual ploy. It dated you. It did. And the funny thing is it survived. Like as recently as New York, uh, I found a New York Magazine article in 2006 where the headline is come up and look at my etchings. And it's about, it's about, uh, you know, kind of Peter Tear penthouse seduction in the Wall Street age. So has it come all the way around? Is it the new Netflix and chill? <laughs> come up and see my etchings? Nothing has replaced Netflix and chill. And maybe it's because there's a new frankness around romance yeah. such that you don't need a euphemism or maybe even a plausible deniability. Oh, I think... If you're on the app, everyone knows why you're on the app. Yeah, that's true. I suppose if you're on Tinder already, you don't need to invite people up to see your etchings. Although, I there is still a ton of euphemism because there are a lot of people on Tinder that claim that they're just in it for the cuddles. Hey, I don't, I'm not into anything serious. I don't want to have sex. I just want cuddles. Come up and see my etchings. Yeah, even cuddles is a euphemism sometime, well, which, sure. I, which I don't like. Sure, I would I would never say cuddles. Even Can if you we imagine? were cuddling, I wouldn't use the term cuddles. You and I have cuddled many times, and you have never used the word cuddles, no. and I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely not. I do it out of respect. <laughs> and that concludes Etchings. Entry 428.gn3907. Certificate number 2793 in the Omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media has survived this latest plague, you know, social media is in and of itself a plague, which do you think would survive if they had to share a Petri dish? If you put social media and COVID-19 together in one Petri dish. We can try this out today. Just take Mark Zuckerberg and put him in a room hmm. with a bunch of, uh, of coronavirus. See who survives. See what happens. It's it's definitely going to be coronavirus. (laughs) In the first round, it'll be coronavirus. Uh, In in the the unlikely event, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are archived at at Omnibus Project. And our handles were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. I am still kind of lurking on Twitter under duress. Ken is there spreading spreading the disease of his sense of humor. I'm making it good for you. Like... I'm the best thing about Twitter right now for it's you. It's true. You and Jason Isbell. He's pretty good. Um, I'm also on Instagram at John Roderick. You can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Um, our fan groups are The Futurelings on Facebook and Reddit and Discord and other places. Just put just put Futurelings in. I think we're currently the only people using future language. Is that good or does it make us seem ineffectual because we haven't been able to get it to catch on? No, I think it's catching on. I just think that if you find the word futureling anywhere in the world, it's going to refer to the Omnibus Project and not some other weird cult of of juggalos and, and post office aficionados. Some kind of weird Tawana Bible where all the aliens <sighs> have tentacles. Uh, you can email us uh, your comments and complaints or your dad's old sunglasses to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. I'm not sure who sent us this, but somebody sent us uh, an, anti- an antiqued parchment, so it actually looks like a period document, although it is not, of the Monroe Doctrine. You know how a certain kind of uh, person is always carrying the Constitution around with them? Have you ever wanted to carry the Monroe Doctrine around with you? Here's the weird thing. I uh, That was not sent to us. Oh. You just opened an envelope containing the Monroe Doctrine that I actually bought. Where did you buy the Monroe Doctrine? <laughs> I bought it at the Fort Lewis Army Museum. I was like, you have a you have a, a like a weird parchmented copy of the Monroe Doctrine? I want it now. Well, you were just in uh, the Caribbean. You could have brought this with you I to Latin could've. America and used it to get all kinds of free part- perks. I could. I Haven't you guys heard? I could have waved it around. This is my hemisphere. <laughs> uh, and also, uh, we do not want to seem uh, like uh, tone deaf to the uh, the decay of our time and the um, 
the economic collapse and and also the many struggles that maybe uh, our presentlings are facing. We hope that the uh, the one hundred percent free omnibus twice a week is a salve to you that, in troubled times. And we, we we will continue to create content so that in your sequestered garrets, you're not reduced to only looking at etchings, but we'll continue to have our uh, our mellifluous content. Imagine using podcasting as a sexual. Uh, <laughs> Hey, come on up and listen to Ken Jennings and John Roderick. You want to come up and listen to the McElroys? <laughs> uh, a thing less sexy I cannot think of. Uh, but uh, but you can contribute to the the production of our show at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. Listeners, uh, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We don't think the current plague is the final thing. In fact, we hope, in, or the recession that will inevitably follow, the global plague. We don't think that's the final thing either, because we're resilient people. But at some point, there's going to be something where resilience just doesn't cut it. Rising sea levels, doesn't matter how resilient you are, unless you have an aqualung. We hope and pray that such a catastrophe may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word But if providence allows... We hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus. <laughs>